Look at this wonderful crowd. It's fabulous. Well, hello everyone and welcome to this very special event of the, that's associated with the Canberra Writers Festival. For people who don't know me, I'm Catherine Murphy. During daylight hours, I'm the political editor of Guardian Australia and sadly often during the evening hours <laughs> as well. But anyway, I'm here this evening and I'm completely delighted. Now, folks, where else would you be on International Women's Day? You know? <laughs> Hello. Uh, but in the National Library, uh, this wonderful secular cathedral, uh, and with one of Australia's finest writers. So let's just make Charlotte welcome Thank properly. You. Now, just some salutations I need to get into before we plough into the conversation that I'm really looking forward to. Now, tonight's event uh, would not be possible without the generous support of our hosts, the National Library, of course, and we thank the Library very much for the use of this wonderful venue. Uh, I'd also, and of course for their ongoing support of the Canberra Writers' Festival, which uh, many people in this room will know kicked off last year and is heading into its second year, very excitingly. Uh, I'd like to welcome the board of the festival along to tonight's event. And, of course, before we begin our proceedings, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, uh, the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples. Now, to Charlotte. Uh, for people in the audience who are unfamiliar with uh, Charlotte's work, she is the author of five novels, Pieces of a Girl, the Submerged Cathedral, The Children, Animal People and, of course, The Natural Way of Things, which we're here to talk about tonight. She's also written a collection of interviews with Australian writers called The Writer's Room and, uh, and she's also written... Uh, there's a collection of personal reflections on cooking, which I haven't read, which I'd really like to read, <laughs> called Love and Hunger. She's also was an editor of an anthology of writing about siblings called uh, Brothers and Sisters. Her latest book, The Natural Way of Things work we're looking at this evening won a bunch of prizes. <laughs> so many prizes. Estella, the Indie Book Awards Novel of the Year and Book of the Year, and she co-won the Prime Minister's Award for Fiction. Uh, and that was announced here in the library as well. Uh, and the book was also shortlisted for various other prizes, including the Miles Franklin, and we were just talking out in the corridor. It's also been optioned for a film, which is very, very exciting. <laughs> Yes, it is. <laughs> now, I don't know about you guys, but I found it so gripping, I devoured it in a single sitting. Uh, I was on a night flight back from Hong Kong uh, at Christmas time, and I had saved Charlotte's book up for my Christmas break, and I opened it with great anticipation on the flight, and I couldn't put it down. It's just absolutely sensational. And so, let's... Rip into the conversation. Right. So, um, let's not assume because uh, when I uh, talked about this event on my Facebook page, a couple of people said, "Oh, I can't come because I haven't read the book." <laughs> so, if you're one of those people who are persuaded to come, having not read the book, don't fret because I think we should start. We won't by give any special things away. Let's let's just tell the audience, give give the audience a sense of what the book's about. Okay, the, the book is... Um, thank you for having me, by the way, and I'm really sorry I couldn't be here when I was supposed to be here last year at the festival. I got a vile vomiting bug in Melbourne and stuck there three days. Um, so it's nice to be here. Um, the book 
is it opens um, when two young women wake up from a sort of drugged state and find themselves imprisoned in a sort of abandoned sheep station in the middle of nowhere in Australia. And they're contemporary young women. Um, they've been living in cities, going about their lives, but and they don't know why they're there or where they are. Um, they're, they're s they realise very quickly that they're held captive by uh, two men and a fem they eventually learn of the existence of a female sort of guard. She's, she's supposed to be a nurse, but turns out she actually has no nursing qualifications. Um, <laughs> she used to work in a hot bread shop, in fact. Um, <laughs> but so these girls discover quickly that there are eight other girls there. And, and I say girls, they're you know, aged between about 18 and 24 or 22, I think. Um, and they, for a long time, they have no idea w what's happening. And I think at one point one of them says, I think we're in a reality show. And, um, and actually, when you see The Bachelor... It's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Maybe. Completely plausible. Mm. Um, <laughs> they, but what they, they fairly soon discover that what unites them is that each of them has been involved in some sort of public sexual scandal uh, with a powerful man or men, different scenarios. But, and there's a company called Harding's International that has um, basically abducted each of them from their lives and brought them to this place. And um, that's, what we, that's where we are at the beginning of the book. And gradually, you know, the big question with any book, I guess, set in a prison is, uh, will they escape or will they not? Um, so, yeah, that's mm. the scenario. Mm, we can develop that a little bit as we talk. Um, I read an interview where you said that this novel was born from anger, uh, that in the writing you encountered some sort of psychic tipping point. I think you said uh, of the anger it came from 50 years of being a woman. <laughs> now, anger is a really interesting thing to explore. Um, I, I think I know what you mean, <laughs> but anger at what specifically? And I'm very interested in how you manage anger creatively mm. because you, you, you wrangle anger into a fully-fledged dystopian fable. It's not 300 pages of ranting. So how do you allow your anger to escape and control it um, as well? It's a good question. At first, I didn't, I didn't know how angry I was until I began writing, I think. Um, so the, the very genesis of the book came from a, a radio documentary that I heard about the Hay Institution for Girls. I don't know if any of you know of that hellish prison for young women that was operating in the 60s and 70s in the town of Hay. And um, that was a place where 10 young women were taken from the Parramatta Girls' Home, drugged and put on a train and taken out to this place that was newly created for them and they were called the 10 worst girls in the state that was their official um, that's what they were called by the government um, and the thing that sort of started that anger burning was when I understood that one of the reasons a lot of these young women were in Hay and in Parramatta and I've since learned in squillions of places all over the country um, was that they had been sexually assaulted and they told somebody. Mm. 
So they might have been a 13-year-old girl raped by a father, and she told somebody. And she was taken to the police station, charged with a crime called being exposed to moral danger. <laughs> it's mad. Mm, completely mad. Um, and locked up for, you know, however long. And But Hay was a place for the worst girls who they had uh, caused a riot on the roof of the Parramatta Girls' Home protesting about the conditions. And as soon as you hear protesters on a, on a roof, of course, you think immigration detention, mm. you know, there's mm. sort of all these images that kept coming and going. And so when I knew that they were there because they had been um, a victim, but they were locked up, that, that's what, you know, that burn of anger starts. And... And then there was all kinds of problems in... I started writing about it. I didn't want to write about it. I didn't want to write about, you know, nasty, angry stuff like that because I'm nice and I've been <laughs> well brought up and, you know... <laughs> um, and, frankly, I'm afraid of anger. You know, I mm. think a lot of women are... Um, I'm kind of less afraid of it now, but... Mm. <laughs> I was very afraid of it and I... So I spent a lot of time trying to avoid it um, mm. in the writing of the book. There was all kinds of things were, were wrong with the, the way I started writing it, which was set in the past in a place sort of like, hey. Um, and it was very realist and sort of... Anyway, it just wasn't working at all. It was just terrible, terrible writing. So <coughs> I sort of suddenly realised... Well, my antenna was up because of this thing about these young women being blamed for what had happened to them. And then, you know, when you're writing anything... A lot of writers will um, recognise this sort of syndrome as where suddenly everything in the world is about your book, you know, mm. and because your your antenna's up for this stuff. And so I started suddenly noticing things that had been going on forever, um, of cases in the contemporary news yeah. where... Um, so at that point, um, oh, there was the young woman in the army, yeah. that Skype the slut, Skype. as she yeah. became known. Yeah, yeah. Um, there was the young woman sexually harassed by uh, Mark McInnes, the head of David Jones. Um, anyone who's been following the Channel 7 mm. story will see the same thing happens and happens and happens and happens. So then I flipped my time frame and started making it about a contemporary, mm -hmm. in the contemporary world where uh, really I just had to, you know, <laughs> look around each day. Whoop, there's another one, there's another one, there's another one. Mm. And so... Getting back, this is a long rambling answer, but to the question of anger. It was also when Julia Gillard was the Prime mm. Minister. I had started writing it before she became Prime Minister. And I remember this, such a naive day, when she, well, the day that she became Prime Minister and she was walking down that corridor with um, Quentin Bryce mm. and somebody else, another woman, I mm. can't remember who. Mm. And I thought, oh, my God, look at that. Mm. Ah, was and the blind, there were three of them walking together and mm. it's like three women in major positions of power. And I remember thinking, oh, I don't need to write my book. <laughs> well, <laughs> oh, um, dear. But anyway, obviously, <laughs> I was sort of already into it. So, but it, it did feel like a big change had happened really suddenly yeah. and then yeah. we saw what happened. And that, that the way that, um, you know, I think Julie Gillard's government did a lot of really terrible things. But the way that the vilification of her was so 
visceral. Visceral. And mm. so um, I found it so upsetting. I used to get really angry and really upset about... I used to wake up in the night worrying about Julie Gillard, you know, would she kill herself? That's what I actually mm. thought. Because mm. I thought that's what I would do. Mm. Um, under that sort of pressure, with that sort of hatred directed at you, that it's so specifically... Um, gender oriented yeah yep. anyway so all of that was going on so it just sort of but, but you know that remark about 50 years of being a woman because the book is quite different from my previous work and so I had all these people you know friends and people saying you know, once they read it they were sort of like oh my god you know. <laughs> I, I had like, no idea we've you been were having person. dinner with you and, <laughs> yes. you know and all of this was going on inside you and um and and they said where has it come from and I was like, well, it comes from opening your eyes to mm. what our culture thinks about women. Mm. And, and it comes from, I think, internalising 50 years. I just turned 50 when the book came out. Um, you know, when you're a girl, you have terrible things said about you from the day you're born. Um, and you can't not internalise those things. Mm. Um, and I think for me, it just did get to a point where I had to get it out. I mm. had to get it out of me mm. somehow and make, somehow express it. But I didn't even understand what it was that I felt. Mm. Um, so, you know, the great thing about art is that it gives you a way to, to understand um, incomprehensible things in a way. Because you can give a shape to them. Yeah. And you can externalise them and then go, okay, this is what this big, ugly mess, now what do I do with it? I make it into a shape, I make it into a story. Um, I, you know, get to know these young women and, and try and give them some autonomy yeah. in this system that doesn't want them to have any. Yeah, well, they, they have, they, they, <laughs> they certainly <laughs> they develop, all the, yes, mm. they certainly, they certainly do that. Um, so... Where do you think the story lands ultimately? Because it is a little bit ambiguous. ambiguous. You can sort of read it in a number of different ways. For me, uh, my take-home message on the plane in Hong Kong in the middle of, over Hong Kong in the middle of the night was that um, my conclusion was that sexually liberated women are only safe and free to the extent that anyone ever is through separatism through actually op opting out. Mm. Um, and uh, I wanted to ask you, Charlotte, is that a reasonable interpretation? Uh, and if it is, how do we remain optimistic? Yeah. Well, it's a good question. <laughs> I mean, at the... So, so the book end has a kind of split ending and, and there are several... I mean, it depends... I think it depends now who, as a reader, you're following um, at the end of the book. I had these two young women come to me in Melbourne and say, we need to talk to you about the ending. <laughs> and, I mean, a lot of people <laughs> feel like that. Um, and I'm not going to say what happened in the end, but one of them said, you know, I read your book and I just got my best friend. I said, you have to read this now. I need to talk to you about it. And she said, when I finished it, I felt utterly triumphant. And when her best friend finished it, she felt utterly demoralised mm. and defeated. Mm. And they said, I so think I felt both, strangely. 
Well, and they said, who's right? <laughs> and I said, well, you're both, you're both right because I think it depends which of the characters you linger with and which way they go. And for Yolanda, um, who sh there are two main characters, Yolanda and Verla, and Yolanda's always been an incredibly beautiful um, girl and young woman, and that beauty gets her into a horrible situation with a bunch of footballers. Um, and for her, really, her only liberation can come from not just separatism, but separating herself from being human. Yeah. You know, she pretty much sort of becomes an animal and she goes feral in the feralest of ways. Mm. Um, but Verla, not so much. And I think that was a very character-driven decision for me about what would they... How would, how would they, as individuals, be liberated? But I do think... There's certainly, you know, I think, I hate saying the message of the book because I didn't have a message. Mm. I just mm. wanted to yeah. examine things. But, yeah. but certainly I think what I understood about myself maybe is that in order to be free, you do have to separate yourself to a degree from a culture that hates women. Yeah. You know, you have to opt out of certain crap. That, um, you know, for in order to, to not detest yourself, you have to say, right, I don't do certain things. I don't um, read women's magazines that make me feel like crap. I don't, um, you know, laugh along with sexist jokes. I don't, and, you, and that is, it takes guts to, you know, not to read, not read women's magazines, but it does take courage to to stand up well and just not it. not uh, not allow yourself to be defined in those terms yeah. but it's but it's more than that it's it's more than not allowing yourself to be defined in those terms it's you also give these characters incredible even though they're confined even though they're in a prison setting against their will mm. you give them incredible agency mm. and it's that agency that sort of gives them their freedom yeah well it's 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 the decision to be free you know yeah. Um, and so they're, they're in this prison. It's like a broken down sort of sheep station. Everything's broken. Nothing works. There's no um, phone or internet or anything. There is one very effective piece of technology, which is this huge electric fence that runs around the whole place. Completely impossibly, as has been pointed out to me by various people. But <laughs> <laughs> I don't care. Um, <laughs> in this book, it works. Um, <laughs> it wasn't actually. It seems very plausible. It seems plausible. Um, but, but at a certain point, what the, the captors understand is that actually they are captive as well. And that Harding's International, who they keep saying, oh, Harding's is coming and this will happen then and you'll be sorry when Harding's gets here. And, and so they're waiting and waiting for a kind of head office to show up. And it gradually dawns on them that head office doesn't give a shit about them. Well, head office has abandoned them. Mm -hmm. So they're all stuck there in this place. And that's when the, the power can, the, the balance of power can start to shift. And, and they all start going a bit feral. You know, they're in this place. They start going out into the landscape um, a little more, and some of them a lot more. And that, that was when it got interesting for me to go, okay, well, what, 
what can they do? What do they do? How do they conceive of themselves in this place? Um, and what level of agency can they mm. choose for themselves? Mm. Mm. Yes, it's really interesting. Um, now, I want to get into now, and we will come to questions. So I know you guys will have lots of questions for Charlotte and lots of observations you might want to share. So I'm going to try and not hog the stage entirely. But... And I know this is a preoccupation of yours, having written the book on how writers work. But I'm a serious nerd about how people work. I'm really, I'm endlessly fascinated by I how people too. work and their processes. So I want to ask a few questions in that vein. Um, even though I feel nervous, given you've set a high benchmark. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway, let's let's just let's just try. So, how do you work? I mean, this in a in a very practical sense, right? So, what's your routine? Do you write at home? Do you write somewhere else? Uh, do you work early in the morning? Do you work late at night? Uh, are you plugged into the world? Are you disconnected from the world? Let's talk about some of your processes. Yeah, I love all that stuff. I love all that. I'm obsessed about other writers and how they do it because you always think, uh, I obviously do it wrong. Everybody else does it. <laughs> so I did. I read a whole book of interviews yeah. out saying, yeah. tell me how you do it. <laughs> Help me. Um, so I go through what one friend describes as sort of seasons of writing. So I don't write every day. You know, you read all these writers, they you have to write every day, otherwise you're not a real writer, blah, 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 which is bollocks. Um, the thing, the great thing about The Writer's Room, which is a book of interviews with Australian writers, the, the biggest discovery I made in there was to really understand how utterly individual it is and how the only um, thing you have to do is whatever works for you. <laughs> so... What works for me is that when I'm in a... So I'm back in writing a new novel now. Um, so last year when I was doing a lot of speaking and stuff, I, I found it very hard to work on my new book because yeah. the head's sort of in two places at once. But now I'm back into it. I do the thousand words a day. That sort mm -hmm. of um, is the way that I can just feel like I'm pushing forward. Um, I tend to get to the desk early, but I don't tend to do anything until... Um, I, what I loved was Amanda Laurie in the, in the writer's room book saying, I just have an 11 o'clock switch and then I can work. And I'm like, oh, I think I've got that. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, you say you don't do anything. What do well, you I do? Well, I sort of faff around. I mean, I do the... I saw some writer call it the internet ablutions that you do in the yeah, morning. <laughs> sure. Emails and all of that. And I'd sort of get... And I can't remember who said that, so... Um, I can't attribute it properly. But I... I kind of have to work up to it, you know. Like I mm. always, I'm always afraid. I'm always afraid. Every day I sit down to bloody work and I'm, it's ridiculous. What are you afraid of? Afraid. I, I think how hard it is. Mm. It's just so hard. And now I'm writing another book, you know, and you start, and wh whenever you're not writing, you go, oh, I wish I was writing, you know. <laughs> I can't wait to get back to the desk. And you have all these lovely little frittery thoughts about your beautiful new book that is going to be easy and fun and <laughs> really intelligent and all these things and then you get there and it's like oh, I don't know how to do it mm. like every book you think you should know something but you don't <laughs> you must you must though you, you must acquire a certain amount of I'm sure you're being entirely too modest but you must acquire a, some sort of muscle memory about how to write a novel though I think you look the the thing that you 
I think you're quicker at diagnosing problems. You say so you can go, okay, I'm going to write this, but then you think, actually, that won't work because then the narrative will split and that will happen there and then I'll have to do flashbacks and I don't want them. And so you're better at sort of structural knowledge, I think. Yeah. Um, but also, hopefully, you're trying something new and something you haven't done before. Now I'm in a bit of a pickle because I'm trying to not to repeat myself. And so I've got five novels now and every time now I'm starting you know these things and I think oh no because then it's just like the children by the sea mm. and then it's just like animal people but with old women and <laughs> then it's just like and I was with these writing friends last week and they were just saying oh, shut up just get over that it's ridiculous because I suppose things that I learned in writing those books were craft things mm. mm-hmm. um, as well as all kinds of stuff but to me the it's very satisfying to learn more and more about how to craft and shape a story and mm. do that thing where you, you know, I never thought in my wildest dreams that I could write a book that people said I read it in one sitting and I couldn't put it down. It was a page turner. Mm. That was never something I'd be able to do. So now I feel like I've figured out or learned from others and how to do that a bit. But so then if you do it again, you feel like, oh, I'm just... When in fact it's just learning your craft and mm. you're applying mm. bits of the craft that you've learned. Um, but you know, I do. A lot of writers say it's not just me that you do feel like you you know nothing all over again. And you know, obviously you must. You're right, of course. But you feel. I think. I was thinking the other day. I just had this week away writing every day solidly and. You forget that it's just really hard to make things up out of your head that don't mm. exist. <laughs> no, well, um, well, this is this is my endless fascination with fiction writers. Mm. It's sort of like, what what process of cognition have you got to go through in order to literally invent invent a world? Because it it, it's, it seems to me like that you would have to be in some sort of quite submerged state. Mm. Well, it's best when you are when you can get into that, and I think for. A lot of the times they're about momentum and getting into that. And that's why like, I don't really want to do hardly any public speaking this year about my work. I'm, ha- I'm chairing other things and whatever. But to get the momentum up where you just stay with the story and you stay with mm. the book, mm. um, it does get easier when you've got a rhythm going. You know, And even if – I mean, I've written books when I had full-time jobs and all of that. So it's not doesn't mean you have to have you know full-time writing. But – I think you get in the, you just get in the thing that it's in your head all the time. Mm. And I know it's, I'm getting into it properly when I start dreaming about it or I think about mm. it when I wake up. Or, right. yeah. um, and, you know, of course, the dreams are completely useless for the book, but <laughs> they're sort of the people in my book are in my dreams or mm-hmm. that you're sort of inhabiting it. But there are, I did a PhD last year, the year, year before last. Um, I mean, I finished it the year before last. And part of it was on cognitive processes of creativity. And I got these writers that I know and recorded our conversations about our work in progress over a year. Because I wanted to know, did, uh, were they cognitive things that we were doing that we didn't know we were doing? Mm. And there were, in fact. Um, so then I wanted to see where they... So I transcribed these things and looked for similar processes and whether we had them in common. And we did... And some of them are very, you know, well-known, established ones. Like, um, you know, I won't be able to think of any. Um, 
Oh, you know, there's the incubation period mm -hmm. and then there's what some people call illumination or the flat, you know, and when you're in the shower and suddenly you've got the solution to your problem, whatever. Mm. But there are all kinds of other ones um, where you're sort of working away and then that's not working, so you turn it upside down, which is what I did with the time frame thing mm. for this book. Um, anyway, there's a whole bunch of other ones. But but in a way, knowing what they are doesn't help you do it, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which yeah. is the really frustrating thing. Yeah. But what about things like... Um, uh, do, do you... <laughs> <laughs> Full nerd. Sorry, morning. Um, no, this is all good stuff. <laughs> Everyone wants to know this. But uh, notebooks. Uh, mm. li like I know myself, I don't. Uh, I in I, I don't write fiction, obviously, but uh, I like to keep <laughs> <laughs> open myself up for that one, people. <laughs> um, but I I keep books. I keep little books uh, mm. of uh, a, a little pink moleskin book that I keep observations in that I don't want to forget um, you know little bits of things people say that kind of resonate with me I'm sort of I'm a collector uh, yeah well so I do, all do, that. You do that yeah yeah and and again I know when I'm really in the book when it's like oh everything is useful you know everything is so when you or when you see public transport's really good for novelists mm. I mm. spend a lot of time on buses and sort of just, you know, spying on people and overhearing things. And mm. but, but sort of um, just looking carefully and listening to just things going about in the world. Um, but I'm sort of... I wish I was a better notebook keeper, like Helen Garner, you know, her famous notebooks. Um, you know that essay collection of hers at the moment, mm. Everywhere I Look? And Everywhere there's those look. three yeah. or four things which are just snippets from her... Notebooks. Mm. I would read ten volumes of that. Mm. I just think they're fantastic, and it's about the precision of her observations, mm. and that's sort of. But I'm I I write it down. Sometimes the act of writing it down just makes me remember it, mm. and then other times I go back and I look at it and go, "What the hell?" <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I, a I can't read it, and B, I can read why it. Why did this seem like a good I idea? Write this down? Mm. Mm. But I do. I used to be much more sort of um, diligent about using a notebook. I think I'm maybe better at just knowing what things coming to me that I've kept a mental note of. Yeah, well, you don't, you don't have to document in quite the same way. That's yeah, presumably... Yeah, but you sort of, you know, when, you, when you've got a project on the go, you're also going, oh, yeah, I can use that. I, you know, you're kind of looking for things to use... So it's not so much that I have a bank that I go to and go, oh, I can use that. I'm sort of, I'm out in the world sort of, you know, mm. using people. Mm. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the craft of the writer. That's absolutely the craft of the writer. Um, what about just fun things? Fun things. In terms of your rituals, like, you know, do you, are mm. you, a, do you, do you, I have a I little sleep know. sometimes. That's I mean, well, sleep, sleep, yes. Sleep, um. Anything I often have a nap in the afternoons. Mm -hmm. Now I'm working, uh, I've got this amazing residency at um, Sydney University. It's a bit harder to have a nap in. Can't you just lock office. the door? My campus got a glass wall. Oh, so bugger. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they wouldn't care. They want me to be there to do, you know, to be the sort of artist freak in the science <laughs> building. Um, and they're amazing people. But, um, yeah, no, so I don't sleep there. But... Uh, <laughs> 
I, I mean, half the time that's because I'm so bored with what I'm doing that I just kind of <laughs> literally... It's <laughs> true. I mean, I think one of the really underestimated things about writing is how boring it is a lot of the time. Boring in what Bo way? You boring. Just bore yourself to death. Oh well, sure. Like you know, you're writing idea. stuff yeah. that's just like. Um, my friend Tegan Bennett Daylight, who's a beautiful writer, emailed the other day and she said, "Oh well, here I am. I've, I'm on a writing day and I'm just up Sheep Creek without a paddle." <laughs> and and I knew exactly what she meant. Mm. You know, but you're still doing it, but it's just nothing's happening. And then the next day she said, "Ah, oh, so I'm back at the." Um, Chip Creek Paddle Interface. <laughs> <laughs> Paddling away. <laughs> um, and it was marginal. You, you know, the only way through it is to keep pushing keep through pushing. it. But that awful time when it's just sludge, you know, there's, you haven't got any engine or... or it's like when you're in a car and, you, and you know, the battery's flat or mm. whatever, when it doesn't work. Um, <laughs> when you're sort of trying to rev it, it's mm. just not going anywhere. And then eventually there's that sense that, it's moving, something, you know, I don't know where it's going or it could conk out again in a minute, but once it's moving, then, you know, the fear sort of subsides. Then you don't have to drink. <laughs> well, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, I hope you've got your thinking caps on because I think we'll get some microphones going around so that we'll spare Charlotte from full nerd for a period of time. Who's Love got a question? Full nerd. Totally full nerd. Sorry, mate. We've got loads here. I think we have we microphones. microphones. Do we have microphones, guys? Thank you. Just, just in the middle, in I think. Charlotte, I just would like to thank you for being here. It's great to I usually see you in the Blue Mountains. But um, uh, this morning uh, on Radio National, um, Julia Gillard, somebody texted in uh, uh, as a, a comment on Julia Gillard in the uh, women who made it, you know, made it made a, an imp a, an a change in my life. And this woman, uh, this woman uh, had texted in to say that uh, uh, to recognise Julie Gillard for, in particular, the uh, commission, Royal Commission on Institutional Abuse. And uh, I think that, uh, that sh all politicians do things we don't like and things that we do like and, and appreciate. And sometimes those are surprises. But... Um, but uh, uh, Gillard certainly copped it. That really, I think, as Anne Summer, Summers uh, drew out, yeah. really drew out the, the misogyny. So, um, and I was, I was wondering, given, given the, the um, your awareness, are you uh, uh, through this book, would you ever consider, do you think you'd ever consider writing uh, uh, an interesting page-turning uh, book about... Uh, female politicians in Australia. Whoa. Whoa. Well, somebody should write that book, shouldn't they? Um, I don't think it would be me. Oh, who knows, me. But I don't think of myself as a political animal, really. I think, I think what Julia Gillard did 
was incredible. I think the, her achievements were incredible given the pressure and the abuse that she suffered uh, very much also from within her own party. And I just think, imagine what she could have done if that wasn't happening. Imagine. But she also, um, you know, she kind of sacrificed herself as the first female prime minister. Whoever w it was was going to cop that stuff, I think. Well, and she said when she departed that that uh, whoever came next, it would be, be easier. easier. Well, let's yeah. hope. Let's hope. I mean, it was it was shameful. I remember the day of that, um, you know, that hideous menu thing, the big red mm. box. I just cried my eyes out that day. I was so... I still get really emotional about it. Just... Mm. Just the sort of carving up of the body and the and the the derision and the quite personal hatred of that. And you think it's personal, and then you see exactly the same thing said about Hillary. You know, the the KFC Hillary Burger, exactly the same wording. Um, so, you know, it's kind of textbook misogyny, how to shut a woman up, I guess. But um, I would love someone to write that novel. I've I don't think I would go into that territory, uh, but who knows? Thank you for the question. Others? Another couple in the middle. Really? Yeah. Okay. You'll, go, you'll be back to full nerd, I warn you. <laughs> Sorry, thank you both, um, and thank you for the full nerd questions because they were right up my alley. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask how you find the process of having book covers designed um, when someone else has a visual response to your words that will then present them to others. Thank you. It's interesting because this book is now being published um, in quite a lot of different countries, and so I'm having this process over and over again, which is um, really interesting. So in Australia, I have a wonderful publisher called Jane Palfreyman who always really shows me a lot of the designs. They d for this one, I think, I don't know how many designs, they did about uh, over 50 different cover designs before they settled on the one that it has. Um, a lot of them were much darker and more sort of threatening looking. And then, you know, there's a lot of marketing that goes into book cover choices. And there's always a feeling with, I don't know, if it was a thriller thriller, they would probably love it to be full of, you know, gory stuff. But um, so basically, you know, it's a very pretty cover with a few creepy elements in it. And that was pretty much a marketing decision to, to not put people off you know, mm, a ranty feminist novel. Um, <laughs> and I love the cover. I think it's very beautiful. And I like, I like the, you know, the, the nature references to the place where they are and everything. Um, the British used that same cover but in a different colour. The what Americans... Colour? What colour? A sort of uh, bluey-green. Oh, it's okay. really lovely. Because it's pink, if you haven't seen the Australian Yeah, it's pink. Colour. I mean, a pink. Yeah. It's... I always thought, oh, who ever thought I have a pink cover on a book? And then I realised, actually, I've had about three pink covers. <laughs> <laughs> um, sort of dusky, dirty pink. Um, but the American cover is um, red dust, 
the rusty chain and something else. The um, I think it was the Dutch cover. They sent us this really strange image of a a young woman floating in water. <laughs> and so my book said in the middle of like the outback. And so we had a little bit of a query like. It's all this water. With a crocodile? <laughs> or no, like, oh, it's sort of the subconscious. Anyway, I mean, mm. I used to really be um, very concerned about covers when I started, or having, having a part of the process. But now I just think they know who they're... You know, if you think of it as a marketing exercise, which sadly it, that's really what it is, you, all I want is a cover that's going to make someone pick it up in the shop and have a look, and then if they put it down, fine. But um, but at Allen and Unwin, they put a lot of beautiful work and effort into covers. I know other, some, I've seen other writers have really kind of depressing cover experiences where, and I know two writers who were offered the same cover, because um, <laughs> one of them got it and the other one said, they tried to give me that cover. <laughs> and she said, oh, well, I was the idiot who said, all right. Um, which is just sort of a generic, you know, woman looking out a window. And there's all that whole... And there's, there's actually lots of really funny stuff online about, you know, headless women, headless women's backs. Um, that was, I guess, the one thing I did not want on this cover was a headless naked woman. Um, <laughs> there are plenty of them. And actually, my first book had a headless naked woman on it. Um, I was... Is it just a... Consciousness it's reason. a stock image or something, though. Well, it's not the same headless naked woman. It's, you know, <laughs> but it's, it's sort of, so it could be, you know, every woman, but the nakedness is just because, you know. Yeah. Well. Or just because. Just because, yeah. like it is with everything, a naked woman. Yeah. Um, but the naked back is the kind of more literary version, you know. <laughs> it's pretty funny when you look at, when, when various... Um, Designers and people have blogs where they just lay them all out in a row, and it's like, <laughs> <laughs> or you know, the the red dress on the jetty, or the you know, yeah, that, that kind yeah, of yeah. There's sort of, but then again, you know, lots of those are marketed to a really specific people who like the image is part of the recognition of what kind of book it is. So, so I just sort of go, you know, do what you want, right? That answers the question. Anyone else? Here we go. Um, th that question was, do I say do what you want if you don't like the cover? Um, well, with some of the ones in Europe now, so I just got the German cover, which to me looks like a really dated kind of, it's a sort of illustration. I hope none of the German publishers listen to this podcast. <laughs> <Sorry>. um, <laughs> um, it's, just, it's just a completely different vibe than an Australian book would have. And they're making a lot of the kind of deserty thing, whatever. But um, So I don't love it, but I respect, you know, I don't hate it. I've never had a cover that I've hated, actually, because I've had publishers who are really nice to me and, you know, want me to be happy. Every now and again, when I've seen, you know, the range of... But they're quite smart the way they do it, you know. They know the one they want. <laughs> they show you, they go, well, I've got these. And then everyone was really taken with this one. Um, so you kind of know that when you're not getting that one again. <laughs> and sometimes I've liked a, a different one more than the one they've shown me, but often they're very similar. There might be a slightly different typeface or, you know. Um, I'm sure there's loads that they don't show me that I would have loved, but, you know. And it's not... I don't think it's the author's job, really, to... to because, you know, plenty of authors have got 
terrible taste in <laughs> design. <laughs> so I don't, and I think this is their, that's their uh, expertise. So I let them go with that. Others oh, in the middle here yeah. with the microphone there? Yes, oh, great. Oh. 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 Um, uh, oh, sorry. sorry. Yes, <laughs> microphone. microphone. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Julian. Um, thanks, Charlotte. It's lovely hearing you. You're, you're, you're wonderful. Thank um, you. We discussed a book in our reading group, as I'm sure a lot of people here have, and we had a rather hysterical discussion because a lot of people got caught up on the plausibility issue. And so we had things like, no, the electric fence wouldn't work. Don't they know it wouldn't have worked? <laughs> are they, no, are there no one would get that many rabbits. No, there's no, <laughs> there's no mushroom season that would last that long. I knew uh, that about uh, the mushrooms. Are there engineers in your reading group? Actually, I don't think so. Right. No. Anyway, just um, curious. So I'd like to know what you think about this whole plausibility factor in fiction. What do you think about it? And also um, how much research you do to get facts right? It's a really good question. I think... Um, it sort of depends what kind of a novel you're writing. Like with this one, I wanted it to be strange and weird and that meant I could take all kinds of liberties with reality. I mean, you know, women don't generally sort of turn into rabbits. So, you know, I knew <laughs> we were kind of going into <laughs> a place that was not... But it also does... It needs to be as convincing as... I. I guess my benchmark is would I believe it if I read it in a book? And, and would I believe it utterly depends on my faith in the author's voice, um, in the characterisation. So stuff like that kind of logistical um, fence issue and how many rabbits and even the mushrooms, which I did think about. Um, and also, you know, is that I got in trouble from someone because I didn't name the plants properly um, and that thing wouldn't grow there and it would grow... And then luckily I thought to myself, but that was in a dream anyway, so it <laughs> did grow there. Um, but I actually, in this novel, I couldn't give a rat's about any of that. And, and to me, it's like, it, are you going with... If you, as a reader, are going to resist to that extent, then I think you're losing out on some other things that are, are true, you know, that... Mm. If I if I'm not if I'm sort of not uh, at ease with the book from the beginning, then I'll then I'll panickety about all those things. You know, as a reader myself, I'll think, oh, that didn't happen. But it's because I didn't I don't trust anything in the book. So, um, but the other weird thing is that a lot of this plausibility stuff and the kind of extremity of what I was writing about, it actually isn't that extreme. You know, <laughs> like. The stuff that, you know, there's a scene in the book that's not giving anything away, but the, the girls sort of find some, like, sanitary pads and things, and they, they haven't been given any, and it's awful. And they find them, and it's this sort of <gasps> magical moment, you know. And then you read about, you know, Nauru or wherever, mm. girls having to wash out rags because they're not even being given sanitary products. And it's like... Well, there you go. It's not very dystopian after all. I mean, and the other... I was reading stuff when I was writing it about um, um, the uh, makeup company Garnier sending beauty products to women in the Israeli army just so they could feel nice about themselves like that. So, you know, that's <laughs> like... Okay, Put so your makeup on before you shoot someone. Yeah, like... Mm -hmm. We live in a very 
weird world. And <laughs> so that's a very long-winded answer. But basically, I don't care about the plausibility stuff. Um, in my next book, which is a much more realist, naturalistic world, I will have to, I do care, you know. So to me, once I was into that strange, otherworldly kind of vibe, then I, that was the great thing about it. I could do anything and not care whether, um, you know, the fence would work really or blah, blah. But I know that some people, it does bother them, but that's all right. That's, you know, they're allowed. Who's next? Now this young woman. Um, hi, thanks for t uh, talking to us today, Charlotte. Um, I was just wondering, what was the thought behind having um, no chapter titles or chapter numbers? I know you have the seasons for each of the parts, but for the individual chapters, it was just blank. I was wondering what the thought was behind that. Uh, that's a good question too. I did originally have um, chapter one, chapter two, etc. And then I... I decided against it because I wanted the kind of structure of the book to be part of the dislocation, you know, that feeling of not knowing how long we're here, how, where we are, what... So th the only markers that the girls had were the seasons. So I just decided that the that would be the markers for the reader as well. Um, and there's also a tense thing that I think some people have issues with where... Yolanda's voice, I can't remember which one now, one of them's in the present tense and one's in the past tense, um, even though they're at the same time. And again, I wanted that to be a sort of dislocating thing to make people, to have the reader never really knowing exactly where they are until mm. you sort of get into the rhythm mm. of it. It's true, yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but it's true. Um, so that you, you know, that you sort of feel it there isn't too much distance between you as a reader and them mm. in their situation. Mm. Mm. Who's next? Hi, Charlotte. You've mentioned that you had some resistance from readers, and I was wondering on International <laughs> Women's Day if you had any interesting male responses <laughs> to the book. <laughs> That's a good question. The weirdest thing in the world is that I have had so many men love this book, which is so heartening. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there are millions who hate it, but they don't write me letters. <laughs> Um, I actually was quite afraid to go out talking about this book in public because I was really afraid of this figure that I had in my mind of angry, ranting library man um, because I've seen it happen with people writing much more innocuous stuff. And I was, I was actually um, interviewing another writer about three months before my book came out and hers was a book about Paris and it was, you know, the most indefensive, you would think, book in the world. And this man just got up and went for it in this really vicious way and I couldn't really understand what the problem was until I, I just thought, you just don't like that you've had to be quiet for an hour and <laughs> listen <laughs> to this woman speaking. And it was the only explanation I could have. So I was quite frightened that I would have, you know, um, aggressive. I had a few people say shitty things on the internet, but, you know, you get that. Yeah. for breathing so um but i've had so many like i've had other books with really nice men in them um and i've never had the response from men that i've had to this book like pretty much once a week even now i'll get an email or uh, from a man telling me 
how much it's meant to him, how much it's made him think about things, how much he wants his sons to read it and he's buying it for his you know, son's friends and or young men. You know, it's kind of really staggered me how... And some of the best reviews I've had have been from men, especially um, in America and Canada. So, yeah, surprising and very heartening to me, I think. Oh, God, we're up against time. This always happens to me. There's got to be... Let's do two more. Yep, go for it. Um, Hi, Charlotte. My question to you is about your anger. Um, I feel like as women, one of the things society tells us is that we're not allowed to be angry. Mm. There's a range of things we're not allowed to be. Angry is one of them. So my question to you is how important do you think it is for women to be angry? Um, And have you had any backlash since you wrote an angry book? Um, It's hard, isn't it? Because even I have so much resistance to that word angry. It's like, I don't want to be an angry writer. I'm not angry. I'm nice. Um, But, and I, and... It's a word that is sort of tainted. When I've had reviews that have said this book is ferocious and fierce, then I feel really great. When they say it's angry, I feel like, oh, I'm not allowed to be that. Um, so maybe maybe part of it for us as women is to recast it for yourself and think, I'm not angry, I'm ferocious. <laughs> and that... Um, I also think one of the things that I wanted to save the book from too much anger is humour. And, you know, I know it's not a laugh a minute, but, um, and actually at at the launch of the book, I was so anxious about it being so dark. I remember saying to everyone, like all my friends, look, you know, it's pretty dark, but there are some funny bits and here's one. And I read it (laughs) and as I was reading it, I was thinking, oh. And I was just looking at these faces, these (laughs) stricken. And... um, not so funny. My lovely friend Georgia Blaine, who many of you will know, who we lost heartbreakingly last year. Georgia, at straight up, I got down. She said that wasn't funny. <laughs> <laughs> she said there are funny bits in there, but that wasn't one. I'll tell you what to read. Um, so, but I think, like for me, just going around the world, um, humour is a really essential companion to um, anger or. As I heard, I think uh, an American feminist called Patricia Williams, I think I'm going to get that wrong, um, called having the gift of intelligent rage. And I really love that expression. But that's intelligent rage is, again, it's not just screaming in a corner. It's, there's something constructive in it. And I think, for me, that sense of having something to do with it with the, rather than just sort of the impotent rage that's that's not a good thing but if you can channel it use it somewhere um you know to make something beautiful or powerful or fun or funny then you know i think that's the way that i can manage it thank you for the question be fierce Hmm. one more Oh, um, thanks, thanks so much for uh, talking tonight, Charlotte. Um, as I think I'm the only man questioner, so I feel like I have to be angry for being quiet. You're going to be that guy in the library. <laughs> but I'm, I'm just, I think you've left Twitter recently, yeah, and I'm wondering if that's a writing method thing or if that's about the toxicity of Twitter. Um, a bit of both. I, 
so I was on Twitter for ages and I loved it. I was, this was years ago. I was absolutely in love with it. And I think it's an amazing, you know, it's changed our world in really <laughs> lately terrifying ways. Um, but I was completely addicted to it then and I was just never off it. And that thing of when you're writing a book, you do need to be private. You know, you need to be quiet. Well, I, d I need to be quiet. So I went off Twitter for nine months when I was writing this book, I mean, The Natural Way of Things, and then I went back on and really enjoyed it for a while. And then I find that <coughs> I don't get, I never got all the hideous trolling foul stuff that women on Twitter I've seen, you know, get the most disgusting abuse, which really, really upset me seeing that other women get that. I never got any of that myself, but um, I still was really affected by seeing it around. But also I find, because um, all the people that I followed who I thought were interesting are all politically engaged people and concerned about the world, and but just the onslaught of, you know, what you deal with mm. every day, mm. I, I find it hard to keep my mental health, frankly. Um, so the combination of... Um, I, went, I, was, I sort of was not using it a lot, and then just before the inauguration, my American publisher asked me to do a week of tweeting from their account about stuff to do with the book and whatever, and, you know, leading up to the Women's March on Washington and all of that. So I did that. So, I mean, I was solidly on it for a week because you had to respond to people and all of that. And... Um, and I found that really draining. Um, and I do miss it. I miss it. But I also think I won't probably be back on it even when I finish this book because it's a big time suck for me. Like for writers, you know, anything to avoid writing. So you can get onto Twitter and you end up in a really interesting conversation or a really, you know... Unproductive conversation. Unproductive conversation. Mm -hmm. I did stop doing that years ago. I stopped having arguments on social media. Um, but I'd still, you know, you see something awful said to somebody, you do want to jump in and sort of stick up for them. So there's, and it's just, you know, you could spend your whole life doing that. You're on Twitter, I take it. You must be. And you don't find it like that? Yeah. Yeah. But now mainly it's just so I can get my next book written. So maybe, I'll, I mean, I might go back, I don't know. When Donald Trump's not there anymore, maybe I'll go back. <laughs> <laughs> yes, hang on to your hats. Mm. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the next book, or is it a secret? It's not a secret, but it's just there's so little there. <laughs> but it's about ageing. It's about um, mm -hmm. three women friends in their 70s who are not frail little old ladies. No. Cool. Cool. <laughs> Fierce ladies. Fierce ladies, but, you know, having to deal with the... Um, you know, what goes on in your body and your mind yeah. as we are all getting older and basically about, you know, our society hates women. They really hate old women. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'm interested in our, in ageism, I guess. Mm. Um, mm. So we'll see. And so partly a response to, um, you know, I wrote about, yeah, it's that thing of having to flip and change tack even though, yeah, who knows? Well, they won't be in a prison. That'll be good. <laughs> <laughs> no. It's like, yeah, well, Helen Garner writes about the invisibility of 
ageing women, which yeah. is, you know, there's lots of material. I mean, there's there. so many ways to go with it. It's actually really completely fascinating. And um, and I don't know if I can do it. That's the other thing. You think, <gasps> who do you, you know, but that thing of thinking, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've always felt about 30 years older than I am anyway. So <laughs> but I'm finding myself now going shopping and going, oh, that's a nice blouse. I think, hang on. You're not 80 yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you're conditioning your mind yeah, well to I'm this sort of new in project. There. I'm them now, you see. Yes, exactly. Wearing some nice, exactly. getting a nice walking stick, you know. Now, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, we do have to wrap. Um, uh, so as a couple of housekeeping things I'll go through in a, in a minute. But please thank our guest. Thank you. And thank you so much, Catherine. Uh, Can I just... Can no. I just say, I'll just quickly say what a pleasure it is to have such a wonderful interview when you're, you have such a full-on life and I really appreciate it. So it's absolutely you. my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, now, just some thanks before housekeeping instructions. Thank you very much to the marvellous Canberra Writers Festival volunteers, the wonderful people in the green T-shirts who've been looking after us very well this evening. Uh, and uh, thank you again to the library, which is uh, a sacred site for me and I'm sure for many others in Canberra. Uh, the library rescues me most Fridays to write my weekend column and this is just a place I love and adore. Um, now, while I have your attention, everybody, do get out your diaries, mental or otherwise. Please save the date for the second annual Canberra Writers' Festival which will be August 25 to 27. Make sure you don't leave town. It'll be fantastic. I had a fantastic time last year and I plan on having another fantastic time for this year. Uh, now, Charlotte's going to stay. She will be in the foyer. There are books outside. She's very happy to sign your books and have a chat. Please take advantage of that. I'm going to get her to sign mine, of course. Uh, so uh, head off to the foyer. Uh, Happy Women's Day again, everybody. Hope you're enjoying it in suitable fashion. And thanks for coming out. Thank you very much. <laughs>